A battle over a major new oil pipeline is gaining momentum on the ground while it plays out in court. Hundreds of Native Americans from tribes throughout the United States have traveled to rural North Dakota. They're setting up camp alongside environmentalists at the site where the pipeline is slated to cross under the Missouri River. The local tribe has asked for an injunction to temporarily halt construction. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk has more. Just 12 years old, Alice Brownotter leads a crowd of hundreds in a rally against the pipeline. When it goes through, or if, and when it breaks, it will affect everyone. The Dakota Access Pipeline is slated to cross under the Missouri River, just upstream of her home on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. She's worried it will leak and poison the drinking water for the 8,000 people living there. The $3.7 billion pipeline is slated to stretch 1,200 miles from the Bakken oil fields of western North Dakota to Illinois. Dallas-based Energy Transfer Partners is building the pipeline, which has the potential to bring more than half of North Dakota's daily crude output to the rest of America. This is a product that they desire, they want, they have the markets, they have the people, and we're trying to get it there. That's Carrie Cutting of the North Dakota Petroleum Council. She says state-of-the-art equipment will monitor the pipeline to identify leaks. Pipelines like Dakota Access, she says, are safer than the alternative. When the oil boom here took off eight years ago... It was trucks and rail to transport. Now, pipelines have overtaken trains as the leading way to carry North Dakota's crude out of state to refineries. But opposition to new pipelines like Dakota Access is mounting. My name is Jason Kowalski. I'm the U.S. Policy Director at 350.org, and I fight climate change. Kowalski's based in D.C. He says environmental groups are now targeting pipelines because, if they aren't built, fossil fuels can't get to market. They learned this in their successful fight against Keystone XL, the massive project that promised to bring crude from Canadian tar sands to U.S. refineries. President Barack Obama rejected it last year. People took a warm-up lap with Keystone. We all focused on one pipeline for a few years. And now, people are ready to focus on just about every new proposed pipeline in the country. So environmental groups like his and the Sierra Club, they're joining the Native Americans' fight. So are celebrities like actresses Susan Sarandon and Shailene Woodley, who took part in the protests themselves in Washington, D.C. It's a remote part of North Dakota that's drawing the biggest crowds. Officials estimate 1,500 have set up camp in the grassy fields near the Missouri River construction site. Native Americans are pulling in by the busload from places as far as Alaska and Oklahoma. John Eagle Sr. is Standing Rock's historic preservation officer. For two years we've been holding them up, waiting for you to come. And hey, well now you're here with us. <laughs> The protests forced a halt in construction of the pipeline here last week. The Standing Rock tribe has requested a preliminary injunction to further stop construction. The tribe argues the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who approved the pipeline in July, failed to adequately consider the pipeline's impact on sacred sites. A judge in a U.S. district court heard arguments from both sides on Wednesday. A decision is expected in two weeks. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk. Native American leaders from all over the country are in Washington to meet with President Obama on Monday at his last Tribal Nations Conference. Meanwhile, in North Dakota, protesters remain camped out in opposition to a controversial oil pipeline. 
Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and others are bringing issues from the prairie all the way to the capital. One of the biggest issues on the table. The key to the trust relationship between the United States and those tribes. Meaningful government-to-government consultation. Consultation, says Harold Frazier, chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, speaking at a recent forum on Capitol Hill. What constitutes real consultation has become central to the fight, both on the ground and in court, over the Dakota Access Pipeline. That project, if completed, would carry Bakken crude oil over a thousand miles from North Dakota to Illinois. Members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, along with others drumming and chanting at the protest camps, are worried that the pipeline could contaminate their water and disturb ancestral sites. So they sued, in part over alleged violations of the National Historic Preservation Act. It's if there's concern that traditional cultural properties will be harmed or disrupted, then tribes have a right to be consulted. Even if those properties aren't on tribal land, says Sarah Krakoff. She's a professor at the University of Colorado, specializing in American Indian law and natural resources law. Their hope and their sense is that they're not being consulted just to have a box check, the consultation check. But those are the exact words that some leaders use to describe consultation between their tribe and the federal government. In court documents, the Standing Rock Sioux say the consultation process for the Dakota Access Pipeline was, quote, fundamentally flawed. They allege that the consulting agency, that's the Army Corps of Engineers, didn't give them enough time to respond, that they sent a generic form letter to initiate consultation, and didn't consider all of the areas that could have been affected by construction. But here's the thing. Another court document, the judge's decision denying the tribe's motion, is a laundry list of dates that the Army Corps of Engineers did contact the tribe or tried to and just never heard back. So why do these two parties have such vastly different views on the same process? Sarah Krakoff again. Sometimes what the agencies think of as adequate you know, and with all good intentions, do not feel adequate from the tribal side, either because the process isn't actually meaningful to them, it doesn't accord with their time frame and their decision frame, and frankly, their staffing abilities. The Standing Rock Sioux is not the first tribe to bring a lawsuit over consultation on energy infrastructure projects. The desert is quiet except for the sounds of a crackling fire and the singing of ancient songs. That was KAWC reporter Michelle Faust reporting on the Quitsan tribe of Arizona. We feel like that's our ancestors that you're disturbing. With the construction of a wind farm, said tribal administrator Vernon Smith. The Quitsan sued over that wind farm in 2012 and over a solar project in 2010, both on land in California close to their reservation. And now you're seeing this play out in the courtrooms, you know, with Dakota Access. You know, these issues are going to be debated and they're going to be litigated all over the United States. This is happening more and more, says Troy Eide. He's a Denver-based attorney with the law firm Greenberg Traurig and co-chairs its American Indian Law Group. I'd attributes this trend to the Obama administration's efforts to beef up consultation guidelines between tribes and federal agencies. You know, so so the point is, are, are there more arrows in the litigation quiver? And the answer is yes, there are many more. Dakota access may prove to be a turning point in the evolution of this consultation process. When a judge sided against the Standing Rock Sioux tribe earlier this month, the Department of Justice stepped in immediately afterwards with a surprise announcement. It ordered a section of pipeline construction to stop and 
called for serious discussion to ensure meaningful tribal input into infrastructure projects. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. The oil industry is on edge after the Obama administration temporarily halted construction on the 1,200-mile Dakota Access Pipeline. So are some residents who live near the North Dakota camps where thousands of people have gathered to protest the pipeline. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk reports. Here at the North Dakota Petroleum Council's annual meeting, the pipeline has cast a shadow over an industry struggling amid low oil prices. It was very critical to being in place uh, for any kind of recovery and growth in the Bakken production here. That's Jack Stark speaking at the conference. He's president of Continental Resources, one of the largest oil producers in the state. Bakken crude, he says, needs to get to market. He says the pipeline would cut transportation costs and put Bakken crude on a more level playing field. Dakota Access is supposed to carry half the state's daily crude production to Illinois. Andy Black is president of a national association that lobbies for oil pipelines. We haven't had enough pipeline capacity, so that meant that uh, crude oil couldn't get moved to where it can be turned into products for consumers, or it had to go on modes that cost more uh, and were not quite as safe. Modes like rail or truck, when they crash, they can be deadly. Like the 2013 fiery oil train derailment in Quebec that killed 47 people. The boom in shale oil and gas production in North Dakota resulted in a boom in pipeline construction here. 1,400 new miles built over the past five years. More oil is transported by pipeline now than rail. Still, pipelines aren't totally safe. Federal data shows 77 spills or other significant incidents with crude lines just last year. Though, zero fatalities. Like the people protesting Dakota Access, Tom Wheeler was once skeptical. I was definitely against pipelines. I did not want my land tore up with these pipelines, but in the end you have to have pipelines in order to save the roads. A few years back, large trucks carried oil past his house in the Bakken. Traffic since died down and the potholes disappeared now that oil, gas and wastewater lines cross his property. Now he's okay with projects like Dakota Access. It's going to get crude oil the places that need it and can use it. We can't, if we could use it all in North Dakota, it wouldn't matter, but we can't. That's the attitude shared by some North Dakota residents near the protest camps along the Missouri River. Here's Dee Beckler. I have very good friends that are natives, but I disagree with what's going on right now with them. Protesters camped a few miles south of her home worry a potential spill would contaminate the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation's drinking water. The tribe has sued, trying to stop the project from crossing under the river upstream. We all just think it's ridiculous that we've got to be on pins and needles down here not knowing what's going to happen. Meanwhile, Beckler is trying to finish work on an outhouse next to her home. To get supplies, she has to drive through a National Guard checkpoint. North Dakota's Guard arrived earlier this month to relieve law enforcement who were manning the zone. They say they're there to ensure public safety. The protesters here claimed a small victory earlier this month. That's when the federal government announced it would block construction at the Missouri River crossing while reconsidering its permitting decisions. That move did not go over well with the oil industry here. Ron Ness is with the state's Petroleum Council. That was a bad message for the, for the U.S. economy. 
Andrew Browning sees another challenge. He's with the National Consumer Energy Alliance. He claims the industry is up against well-organized environmental groups aiming to stop the development of all fossil fuels. He says it's time for the industry to get out its side of the story. I think going forward, they need to uh, engage um, more broadly uh, with the public on what the, what the vision is, not just this pipeline, but uh, to provide a, a vision uh, to counter the Keep It in the Ground movement. Pipeline proponents launched a seven-figure ad campaign last week urging the administration to move forward with the project. While the energy industry builds its response, the legal battle continues. A federal judge next week is scheduled to hear the tribe's appeal for an injunction seeking a more long-standing halt to pipeline construction. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk. Protesters gathered all around the country this week in opposition to a controversial crude oil pipeline. Here they are at a Day of Action rally in Denver. We The Standing Rock Sioux, the tribe opposing the Dakota Access Pipeline project, are worried that if there was an accident, the pipeline could contaminate their water. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports on the risks of our massive and largely hidden pipeline network. So pipelines are everywhere, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. For example, right now I'm standing on top of one of these pipelines in a quiet residential neighborhood called Aurora, that's a suburb of Denver. And there are these metal signs about five feet high that say warning petroleum pipeline right next to the white picket fence that surrounds this development. If you look on a map, there are pipelines zigzagging all over the Denver metro area and all around the country. Around 2.6 million miles worth of pipelines of varying sizes, quietly carrying everything from hazardous liquids like crude oil to natural gas. But when something goes wrong in that massive system, it can be really dramatic. Parts of San Bruno, California, were turned into a raging inferno around dinnertime Thursday evening. Flames That's a CBS News reporter describing the scene after a natural gas pipeline exploded in 2010. Eight people were killed. More recently, in October, a pipeline explosion in Alabama killed one worker and injured five others. So this risk is real, and it makes headlines. According to data from the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, known as PHMSA, nearly 400 people have died in pipeline incidents, like explosions, since 1996. Over 1,400 have been seriously injured. These numbers have dropped over time. There has been some safety improvements that have reduced the number of fatalities and injuries. Carl Weimer is the executive director of a nonprofit called the Pipeline Safety Trust. But overall, the trend line has started to go back the wrong direction. Especially fatalities and injuries are down, but the number of significant incidents for pipelines overall are creeping up along with mileage. In the past five years, at least 125,000 miles of new pipeline have been built. Weimer speculates maybe the rapid build-out during the oil and gas boom meant work was sometimes done quickly instead of correctly. But because there are so many different types of pipelines... There isn't one single cause of any of these pipelines that you can point at and say that's what the problem is. But what we do know from PHMSA data is that there were 328 significant incidents last year, including fatalities, injuries, spills, and property damage. That's up from 301 in 2014. Top causes last year were welding or equipment failure and corrosion. And there's another common problem. Chris Stockton is with a company called Williams that operates a very long pipeline called Transco. It actually goes from South Texas all the way to New York City. 
and a few more that snake through the Pacific Northwest, Colorado, and Wyoming. Stockton says that one of their leading causes of incidents is excavation damage, and that's just uh, you know folks uh, digging into the pipe, not not even realizing it's there. In addition to these risks, there's the issue of a chronically underfunded and understaffed regulatory agency. FIMSA has 533 inspectors on its payroll. That's around one inspector for every 5,000 miles of pipe. A government audit in October found that FIMSA is behind on implementing new rules. It has 41 mandates and recommendations related to pipeline safety that await rulemaking. But on the ground, are pipelines actually safe? Here's Carl Weimer again. You know, everybody kind of has to judge risk on their own. I, I don't think we try not to tell people whether a pipeline is safe or not because safe to one person might be unsafe to another. Inside Energy found that last year there was just over one significant incident for every 10,000 miles of pipeline, which might not sound like a lot if you don't live near a pipeline, but it is exactly that tiny fraction, that rare accident, that the Standing Rock Sioux are worried about. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. North Dakota's Standing Rock Sioux tribe has made headlines in protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline, which would cross under the Missouri River next to its reservation. But 150 miles up that same river, pipelines and oil development are playing out very differently. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk reports from the Fort Berthold Reservation. Pipelines are nothing new here. More than 4,000 miles crisscross the reservation, home to the three affiliated tribes that call themselves MHA Nation. The reservation lies in the heart of the Bakken oil patch. Edmund Baker is the tribal environmental director. We're in this oil play already, and uh, we want to be able to do it responsibly. We want to be able to do it competently. We want to show other tribes that it can be done because so many people on the reservation have found prosperity in the oil industry. TJ Plenty Chief owns this truck and two others with his Red Road trucking business. He's supporting nine children. He says truck drivers in the oil fields can make over $90,000 a year. Before the boom, you know, I had to work, work, work a lot harder and uh, work in other jobs I didn't, you know, really care for as much. And, working at the casino or whatever, you know. I'm standing next to a pump jack that's pulling oil to the surface from deep underground. A decade ago, there was almost no oil activity here. But today, there are more than 1,400 wells just like this one on the Fort Berthold Reservation. And we try to create a nation that really sustains itself through economic development and through its own abilities. Dave Williams is CEO of Missouri River Resources, the MHA-owned oil company. He walks with me around Newtown, where businesses are plenty and traffic's heavy with pickups. A telltale sign we're in the oil patch. He calls this concept of self-sufficiency economic sovereignty. The nation has brought in substantial money from oil production on its lands, $800 million in tax revenue since 2008, according to the North Dakota Tax Commissioner's Office. Plus, MHA Chairman Mark Fox says the nation's collected $800 million in royalties. All this high cost of living that the oil boom created 
We're trying to alleviate that. With new apartments for residents, a new health care system, and payments of $1,000 to each tribal member three times a year. But Fox says the boom caused crime to spike, as well as drugs and human trafficking. We have impacts to our environment, constant threat of impacts to our environment, to our air, to our water, to our land. Impacts like a wastewater spill back in 2014, one of the largest in state history. One million gallons leaked, threatening the reservoir holding the reservation's drinking water. The chairman admits oil development poses a risk. And we sure as hell don't want to do it in such a way that we taint or diminish the value of our most important asset, which is water. That's why these tribal leaders, like the Standing Rock Sioux to the south, are fighting a pair of new crude and natural gas pipelines slated to cross under the reservoir. We're not against all pipelines, the ones that are land. But what we are against is when pipelines come on to Fort Berthold through other entities and think they're going to develop or utilize pipelines without the approval of our tribe. The nation has tried to halt construction with a cease and desist order, but the pipeline company sued in response. And thus far, a federal judge allowed construction to continue, saying the company has the necessary permits from the Army Corps of Engineers. The case is still in court. Williams, head of MHA's oil company, says the risks mean the tribe faces a responsibility to protect its reservation. If people don't care of, take care of their pipelines, their wells, their production, they're going to destroy land. That's the struggle tribes from MHA to Standing Rock face as they make their own calls about whether the infrastructure is worth the costs. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk. Now that the Army Corps of Engineers has denied a permit to complete the Dakota Access Pipeline, parties with a vested interest are wondering what's next. For thousands who've joined the Standing Rock Sioux's protest against the pipeline, should they leave or should they stay? Meanwhile, the oil industry and legal experts are trying to make sense of the decision and what it means for the project's fate. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk reports. Here in North Dakota, a treacherous blizzard early this week forced snowplows to work around the clock, and it's tough just trudging down the sidewalk. But for the thousands camped on the frozen prairie, it's much worse. So Chairman Dave Archambault of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in a YouTube message assures the pipeline is stopped for now. I'm just asking you that you hear this message and you understand that nothing's going to happen and it's time and it's okay to go home. But that's easier said than done. The blizzard hit the day after the Corps' announcement, causing thousands of protesters to seek refuge at nearby shelters. Many are not planning to follow Archambault's directive. Morningstar Galley of the Pitt River Tribe in California is staying at Standing Rock's casino. She notes that the pipeline company has not yet packed up its equipment and left. Until that occurs, there's many protectors, there's many water protectors that have said it's not over with and we plan to be here until that happens. She says she plans to return to the frozen camp with her 13-year-old and toddler in tow. While protesters stick around, so does law enforcement. Captain Jesse Johnner of the Cass County Sheriff's Department hops in his truck and drives towards several sites where protesters and police have clashed. He's made many trips here from his home three hours to the east to help local officers respond to demonstrations. If not getting the easement allows uh, a 
time where people can cool off, uh, people can go home, they can relax, and we can avoid those confrontations. That's great. Meanwhile, the oil industry and government officials are contemplating the pipeline's future. The Corps of Engineers is launching a much more thorough review of the project, considering alternate routes. But with more than 90 percent of the line complete and pipe already laid right up to the Missouri River, that's likely to cost pipeline company energy transfer partners billions. One alternative the Corps will consider is a proposal scrapped early on to build the line under the river north of Bismarck. Here's Craig Stevens with the Midwest Alliance for Infrastructure now, a group that supports the pipeline. For them to take a look at this route that was already disqualified years ago is, I think, absurd. Launching the new review, a thorough environmental impact statement this late in the game is pretty unusual. And Wyoming-based attorney Karen Bud Fallon calls it unfair. The company assumed it had the go-ahead to build after the original but less detailed environmental assessment. To have the company spend all that time and all that money just to have the federal government go, oh, just kidding, you can't start it all yet, is, is a huge economic cost for the company. And an economic cost to the state. Ron Ness is with the North Dakota Petroleum Council. These severe winter conditions pose problems, he says, for the 30 percent of North Dakota's crude that's carried on trucks and trains. They are a more expensive mode of transport than the pipeline that was supposed to be operational by now. You may be delayed today. You may not be getting that oil to uh, the market you want to get to, so it may uh, may have some negative impacts on your budget. The industry is hopeful Donald Trump will reverse the Corps' decision, but legal experts say it's not so simple. Here's environmental lawyer Luke Danielson. The government is pretty strongly committed to reevaluating the situation, and I think the courts are pretty likely to, to ensure that that process of reevaluation goes forward. Energy Transfer Partners is already challenging the Corps' decision in court. It filed documents earlier this week asking a judge to affirm that it already has the necessary permits to drill under the river without the final easement from the Corps. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk.